This morning we continue to study through Isaiah. We will be uh, wrapping up chapter 55 and getting into chapter 56. Just to set the context for you, um, remember chapter 53, we had the crucifixion of Jesus Christ where he made atonement there at the cross for all of the elect. He cleansed the church. And then in chapter 54, after the atonement of Christ, who purifies the church, we have the expansion of the church. We have the church having worldwide dominion, the prophecy of the church having worldwide dominion. And then now in chapter 55, we have the call going out. The universal call of the gospel. And this morning we will be looking at not only the universal call, but uh, the effectual call also. Uh, the call goes out to all men, but it's only effectual to the elect. And that's how the elect come into the kingdom of God. They are called. They're called by the Holy Spirit. It is effectual application. And last week we got through verse 9 of chapter 55. And so this morning we're going to look at verses uh, 10 through 13. But to set the context, we're going to be reading beginning in Isaiah 55, verse 6. And uh, let's see, I think I will have Bud to read that for us, if you could for us. Isaiah 55, 6 through 13. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven, and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater. So shall my word be that goes out from my mouth, it shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose, and shall succeed in the things for which I sent it. For you shall go out in joy and be led forth in peace. The mountains and the hills before you shall break forth into singing, and all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. Instead of the thorns shall come up the cypress, instead of the briar shall come up hurdle. And it shall make a name for the Lord, an everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. All right. We see the universal call going out in verse 6. He tells the people to seek the Lord and the wicked people to forsake their way and for the unrighteous to forsake their thoughts and to return to the Lord. Um <clears throat> He is telling them to repent. Telling them to turn from their wicked ways and their wicked thoughts to his thoughts. And he says he will abundantly pardon. 
And we learned last week because the Lord is not like us, we can have forgiveness. We always forgive in a grudging way. We are slow to forgive, but the Lord is very quick to forgive any that forsake their wicked ways and turn to him. He, he says in another place in the Psalms, you thought I was altogether like you. But praise be to God, he's not altogether like us. He's different from us. His thoughts are higher than ours. His ways are higher and better than our ways. All right. So having said that, we will be coming to the uh, verses that we're going to cover today at the end of 55. And the uh, verses 10 through 11 says they're concerning God's word. God's word. First of all, he compares his word to the rain and snow that they depend on. Now, Egypt, where they had been in captivity hundreds of years before, they didn't depend all that much on the rain. They had the Nile River. And Babylon, where these people would soon be captives. So the people in Babylon would know <clears throat> that the Babylonians didn't depend that much on the rain. They had, they had the rivers. There's even a whole psalms title by the rivers of Babylon. They're talking about the Tigris River and the Euphrates River. So even in, during a drought, they, they were okay. But it wasn't that way in the Promised Land. The Jordan River just didn't cut the mustard as far as supplying water. The, the big towns just weren't on the Jordan River. So they depended totally upon the rain. They depended on the early rains. They depended on the latter rains. And if they didn't get it, they didn't eat. So they were totally dependent upon the rain. And so God says, For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater. So he's talking about the rain that comes and uh, causes things to grow so that people don't starve to death. And he says, So shall my word be that goes out of my mouth that shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing in which I send it. So in your notes there it says, um, God promises that his word will not return empty or void. It will accomplish its purpose. God's word always accomplishes what God sends it out to do. This could be taken in a couple of different ways. <clears throat> Derek Kidner says that this is God's eternal decree that he's talking about here. That's not the majority opinion. Um, the majority opinion would be that it's about conversion, about God's word going out, convicting, and converting and that's what most commentators take it. Um, Jill, will you look up for us um, Romans 10, verses 13 through 15? I'll tell you when to read that. So his word is not going to return empty. It will accomplish its purpose. He is most likely talking about conversion. So this is concerning the effectual application of God's word. God's word goes out 
to, to most people, it doesn't have any good effect on them. It will have a detrimental effect on them because it will harden them. But to the elect, it is effectual application of God's work, word. It doesn't work effectually to anyone but the elect. The elect and the elect only. All right, let's have Romans 10, 13 through 15 read for us. For whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach unless they are sent? And as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace, who bring glad tidings of, of good things. Okay, so the church, the, the current church, the New Testament church, sends out preachers. They don't take it on their own, they're sent. Preachers are sent. If you're not sent by the church, you have no business preaching. <clears throat> But they're sent, they preach the word, and people hear and people believe. That is effectual calling. So that's what we, I believe, we're talking about in these verses. And in our Westminster Standards, in the Shorter Catechism, number 89, <coughs> states, uh, how is the word made effectual to salvation? And just the beginning of it says, the Spirit of God maketh the reading, but especially the preaching of his word. An effectual means of convic convicting and converting sinners. So God's appointed mean, means for bringing the elect into the kingdom is by the preaching and teaching of the word. And reading. Reading and preaching of the word. That is... And the Spirit of God makes that call effectual. It makes the universal call effectual. And then, of course, number 90, how is the word to be read and heard that it may become effectual to salvation? It says, we must attend thereunto with diligence, preparation, and prayer. So as a point of application this morning before we come to church, to hear the word taught, read, and preached, we need to prepare for that with diligence, preparation, and prayer. Before you come, you should pray and understand the sermon that you can hear the Spirit speaking to you through the Word. And then when we get here and we have the Word preached and taught and read, we're to receive it with faith and love. And we're to lay it up in our hearts and practice it in our lives. So that's how we are to prepare to receive God's word. That's how we are to receive it. And then after that, we're supposed to go out and do it. Just as these people in the old covenant were supposed to do. All right, any comments on those two verses there before we wrap up chapter 55? All right, verses 12 and 13 show further, further what God's word eventually accomplishes. It is nothing less than worldwide transformation. Worldwide transformation. 
We have the crucifixion of Christ, the atonement. We have the expansion of the church. We have the call. We have those that respond to the call. And then we have worldwide transformation. We see in these verses, uh, you shall go out in joy and be led forth in peace. Then the mountains and the hills before you will break forth into singing. The trees will clap their hands. So we have great joy for God's faithful people. It says, instead of the thorn shall come up the cypress, instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle, and it shall make a name for the Lord, an everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. And so great joy in God's faithful people, great joy for the world, and then peace for God's people. Joy for the whole world, heaven and nature singing, and blessing as far as the curse is now found. Just like joy to the world. That's where the words come from. They come from here in Psalm 98. Joy, peace, heaven and nature transformed, and the curse will be rolled back further and further. So there will be worldwide transformation from God's people. All right, that wraps up chapter 55. Anybody? Charles. Um, I, I think what you're referring to here, what these verses refer to in terms of worldwide transformation, um, gives a good opportunity to talk about the two different models of how that works. There's the Lord's way, which is gradual progress over time, and then there's the humanistic way, which is uh, the uh, changing things by means of catastrophe. Now, we're living in the midst of one of those things right now where humanistic man has scared the daylights out of everybody all over the world, and they're using that as an opportunity to completely change everything. And that sounds strange to anybody. I'm sorry, I've been paying close attention to what's been going on in life. Um, and we've had the same thing with say, the Roman Empire, the way it sought to change things. It was by fire, iron, and blood, terror, uh, military power. But God's way is gradual progress of the displacement of Satan's work over time. And, uh, uh, you know, I, I thought of another example. Let's take uh, weight loss. You know, if we follow God's order for diet and healthy living, we will maintain a proper body weight and proper health. We don't follow it, things can get out of hand, and so the humanistic solution is to take a bunch of drugs and have surgeries, which creates a whole lot of other problems. So one is gradual, you know, one takes time to get to the point where you need to be, the other one is instantaneous, a shock to the system, and you deal with the consequences. So I think we should take the encouragement that this transformation um, is in progress and it will continue. Yeah, like Charles says, it's not humanistic. Our, what's the weapons of our warfare? The word and prayer. So yeah, this, we do the supernatural way, not the natural. And just a recommended reading would be in Rush Dooney's second volume of his Institutes of Law. Yeah, it's law, yeah. Institutes of Law. Uh, chapter 66 in that deals with that. He, he does a lot better job than I do talking about it. Yeah, thanks, Charles. Just, uh, 
a more, I'll say, obvious application of what Charles was saying about uh, catastrophic change over slow and gradual. Um, my dad was a member of the John Burke Society, and one of the things that he would point out is that the initial government of this country was set up so that change had to be slow and methodical. Yeah. You had three branches of government. They had to agree for something to happen. And we've all experienced in recent years what's happening with executive orders, which are instantaneous. <laughs> and so that's a, an obvious example to us that God's way is better. Of course, he did things with catastrophe, too. The flood was a catastrophe. <clears throat> but we got to control it. Okay. Um, Bill, the, um, as far as the audience in these passages, I'm guessing they're still the same. It's still the Israelites in captivity, right? And so it seems like there's kind of a transition going on to, I know all along he's been alluding to Gentile inclusion. Um, it seems like what we're talking about now is that these words are more uh, express the uh, purpose for Gentile inclusion now. Uh, is that the case, or is he still speaking to the Jews in captivity, and these words might come, everyone who thirsts and seek the Lord while he may be found, are specifically geared for uh, Jewish repentance? Primarily for Jewish repentance, I would say. Um, but that is a universal call. It's in God's word. And it doesn't specify anyone. It just says, seek the Lord while he may be found. Now, granted, he is talking to the Jewish people at the beginning of verse chapter 55. But, um, yeah, it's directly to the Jews, but, the, but it's also... Um, is there a transition a going on in this prophecy or is it a transition to more of a Gentile? It's hard to say. Okay. It's really hard to say. Like, like I said at the beginning, uh, it, a lot of it seems kind of unorganized and it's hard to figure out exactly what he's doing. Well, you made a point last week that he was talking to the Jews that were in front of him in one group mm -hmm. and the other group was the future exiles to Babylon. Yeah. Um, but then when you get farther out, you know, you can see how the word works with uh, the Gentile. Yeah. His immediate it's audience. Yeah, his immediate audience that he was preaching to, of yeah. course, was the uh, Jewish people right. in about 800 BC. Uh, but it is there to give the Jews in captivity comfort a couple hundred years later. Mm -hmm when they went into captivity. So we actually have two audiences. And as we're going to see in chapter 56, the Jews just don't understand what they're supposed to be doing. And as far as this Gentile inclusion, I, I see no reason to limit verse 6 and 7, 6 through 9 to just the Jews. No reason at all. And I think that'll become a little bit clearer as we go through chapter 56. All right, somebody read the first two verses for us. Laura, I'll pick on you this morning. The, um, 
first two of chapter 56. This is what the Lord says. Be just and fair to all. Do what is right and good. For I am coming soon to rescue you and to display my righteousness among you. Blessed are all those who are careful to do this. Blessed are those who honor my Sabbath days of rest and keep themselves from doing wrong. In this chapter, God is saying, in effect, get ready, all the earth, for my great salvation. It is coming. This is the next progression through these chapters of Isaiah. Get ready. It's coming. The sins are atoned for in chapter 53. The church will enjoy a worldwide dominion, chapter 54. The call has been issued in chapter 55. Now, I didn't put in there, there will be worldwide transformation. And now in chapter 56, we see that those who respond rightly to God's call will have a life characterized by obedience to God's law. These are spoken to those that have heeded the call in chapter 55. Keep justice, do righteousness, for soon my salvation will come and my righteousness will will be revealed. Blessed is the man who does this. All right. 1 John 3, 10. Delaney, will you look that up for us, please? 1 John 3, 10, and I'll tell you when to read. This is those who respond rightly to God's call. Uh, this is clearly shown, verses 1 through 2. No carnal Christians here. They do what God has commanded them to do. The true Christians will obey God. That's taught over and over in, uh, in, um, in the Bible. Okay, let's have 1 John 3.10 read to us. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God nor is the one who does not love his brother. Can it be said any clearer than that? 1 John 3.10 It's very clear. By this we know find it here. It is evident who are the children of God. That means there's some people that aren't the children of God. I get so tired of hearing that we're all children of God. Well, According to this verse, some people are not children of God. But by this it is evident that we are children of God. And who are the children of the devil? Whoever does not practice righteousness, whoever does not do what God tells them to do, is not of God. If you aren't obedient, John, who is very direct on everything, there's no gray with John, he's all black and white. If you don't obey God. You are not his child. It cannot be any clearer than that. John Calvin makes this statement. He says, the prophet, the prophet shows what God demands from us. As soon as he holds out tokens of his favor or promises that he will be ready to be reconciled to us, that our reconciliation may be secured, he demands from us such a conversion 
as shall change our minds and hearts, that they may forsake the world and rise towards heaven, and next he likewise calls for the fruits of repentance. So his commands in here, that's the end of the quote, his commands in here is to keep or preserve justice, do righteousness, keep the Sabbath day holy, and not to do any evil. That's for verse 2 also, not to do any evil. So those are the commands. That's what he tells them in the first two verses. And now Delaney, over here Delaney, I will have you read for us verses 3 through, let's see, 3 through 8. Yeah, 56, 3 through 8. choose what pleases me and hold fast to my covenant. To them I will give within my temple and its walls a memorial and a name, better than the sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that will endure forever. And foreigners who bind themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord and to be his servants, all who keep the Sabbath without desecrating it and who hold fast to my covenant, to these I will bring to my holy mountain and give them joy in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house will be called the house of prayer for all nations. The sovereign Lord declares, He who gathers the exiles of Israel, I will gather still others to them besides those already gathered. <clears throat> all right, we see in these verses that God's blessing is even for those who don't think they can be useful to Him. No matter who you are, if you repent and believe, you are can be useful to God. Anyone who truly has faith and repents of their sins can be useful. God will use him, and that is because he will now be obedient to God and therefore serve in his kingdom, as we see in the first in verses three through six. Now, in Deuteronomy 23, 1 through 6, eunuchs are forbidden from coming with God's people into the temple to worship God. And certain foreigners, like the Moabites, they are forbidden. God says here, you're welcome. My house is a house for all people. It's a house of prayer for all people. I don't care who you are, you can come. The eunuch, says one commentator, may not have an everlasting family, but he has an everlasting name. So God's house will be a house of prayer for all peoples. Foreigners will come and be the people of God just as the Hebrews are, according to verse 7 and 8. They will have a life of joy with God's people, acceptable worship in God's house and prayer with God people. The Gentiles are in. Isaiah makes it very clear. 
All right, I want to spend a little bit of time here on this verse 7. Verse 7 says, These I will bring to my holy mountain. He's talking about all peoples. And make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. For my house shall be called a house of prayer for the Jews. Right? That's the way the Jews thought. No. It's going to be called a house of prayer for all peoples. Alright, this is quoted in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Uh, let's look at Mark's account in Mark chapter 11, if you turn there. And I'm going to read this myself, uh, beginning in chapter, <coughs> excuse me, chapter 11, beginning in verse 15. Now this is Jesus' last trip to Jerusalem. He's the one there to be crucified. This is a day or two before he was crucified. And they came to Jerusalem, that is Jesus and his disciples came to Jerusalem. And Jesus entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. He drove them out. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. Jesus is saying, no more sacrifices. That is it. You can't carry sacrifices through the temple. You don't sacrifice. He shut that down. And then looking back on verse 15, he drove out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. Okay? And then it says he overturned the tables of the money changers. So he had stopped the sacrificing. Nobody could carry anything through the temple. Nobody could buy or sell anything. Remember, these people traveled a long way and they had to buy their sacrifices. You couldn't take a sheep or whatever they were going to sacrifice 500 miles. All right, now, keeping this passage in mind, look back at Exodus chapter 30. I just want you to see the significance of the fact of this passage in Isaiah 56, 7 has when it's quoted in the New Testament. All right, Exodus 30, beginning in verse 11. The Lord said to Moses, When you take the census of the people of Israel, then each shall give a ransom for his life to the Lord when you number them that there be, may be no plague among them when you number them. It's a matter of life and death. It's a matter of life and death. 
You can live or you can be killed by the plague. Alright, verse 13. Each one who is numbered in the census shall give this. Half a shekel according to the shekel of the sanctuary. And as we all know, a shekel is 20 jerahs, right? We all knew that. Okay. Alright. Half a shekel as an offering to the Lord. Everyone who is numbered in the census from 20 years old and upward, it shall give the Lord's offering. The rich shall not give more, the poor shall not give less than the half shekel when you give the Lord's offering to make atonement. So we're talking about atonement now for your lives. You shall take the atonement money from the people of Israel. This is a function of the money changers. The money changers now that we saw in Mark 11. You shall take the atonement money from the people of Israel and shall give it to the for the, ser- for the service of the tent of meeting, that it may bring the people of Israel to remembrance before the Lord so as to make atonement for your lives. You bring your half shekel to the sanctuary or you die. That's virtually what this is saying. What happens when there's no money changers? There's no temple. That half shekel is for the maintenance of God's tabernacle here in the temple in Jesus' time. Money changers can't no longer can no longer in that temple take the money for the service in the sanctuary. Now it was necessary for the temple to exist for that half shekel. In fact, in the Old Testament, in the tent of meeting, the tabernacle, the the shekel was not a coin. It's just a chunk of silver. It was used to build the post. That, up, that held the tab, upheld the tabernacle. It wasn't pure silver, but there was a lot of silver in there. So you take away that half shekel, there's no temple service. So Jesus, in doing this, is putting an end to sacrifice. He's putting an end to the temple. The temple service is out. The reason is, the people of the Old Covenant did not consider that house of prayer to be for all people. They considered it to be a house for the Jews. Isaiah said, no. It's going to be a house of prayer for all the nations. And then Jesus comes and makes that quote, and he says, these things are gone. You're out. It's now going to be a house of prayer for all peoples. There's not going to be a temple here. It's going to be the people of God. It's going to be a spiritual temple for all people. And so it's what Isaiah is saying there. It's going to be a new covenant. Things are going to be different. My house of prayer is going to be for all peoples, one way or the other. So you're saying that those money changers, the activities that were going on the temple was legitimate activities. That wasn't wrong in and of itself, which was what I was Commercialization of the temple. Well, they abused it. Yeah, they abused it, but you're saying it's still legitimate practice. Yeah, they cheated the people and all that. Yeah. So that would mean not. I mean, when so what Jesus is saying, the temple's going to be gone. It's never going back. So those dispensationalists who want to see that return, this passage really gives a reputation for that as well. I certainly don't understand that verse, do they? Uh, but they don't understand the whole Bible. But that's one of the big points they don't understand. So I have to look at the uh, court of the Gentiles. Is that what they call it? The Gentiles? Uh-huh. Yeah, it's out away from any the further. 
Is that something that they came up with themselves? No, that that was God ordained, but That's they didn't allow any Gentiles in there. They, uh, according to the extra biblical accounts, that was used for buying and selling and all that too, and the, the Gentiles could not get in. But they just called it that. Yeah. The court of the Gentiles, or the area. Yeah. Huh. Yeah. But you had also made a point when you crossed that Mark passage before in Sunday school that it was by him shutting down sacrifices in the temple, he was pointing to his sacrifice mm-hmm. that all those others were just shadows of. Yeah. And that, you know, from that point on, there were no other sacrifices until he was on the cross. There was no more legitimate sacrifices, yeah. yeah. And you got to remember... Uh, the minute he, around the minute he died, the curtain of the temple was torn in half. And what happens when you look in the Holy of Holies? What happens to a person? They die. Those priests out there thought, oh no, I'm going to die. Maybe they did die. I don't know. But the priests were gone too, probably. The priests probably died. The other thing that goes along with this is that by shutting down the temple, he then points to the fact that we become temples. Right. The Holy Spirit is living in us. Yep. The people of God are the new covenant temple. Bricks, stones, stones in the temple. Or bricks, I forget which it is. Bricks or stones, but one or the other. All right, anything else? If not, Chase, close us in prayer, please. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word.